0: Hello everyone and welcome to Silver Streams, the weekly podcast from the AFI Silver Theatre and Cultural Center's programming team. I'm Todd Hitchcock, AFI Silver's Director of Programming.
1: I'm Abby Algar, Associate Film Programmer. And I'm
0: Ben Delgado, the Assistant Film Programmer. And today we're going to discuss the latest offerings in AFI Silver's virtual screening room as well as recommending some other titles to view at home.
1: So new for this week, we have RBG, an encore presentation of Betsy West and and Julie Cohen's definitive documentary portrait of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who of course passed away earlier this week at at age 87. And we'll have this with a recorded Q&A with with the directors moderated by Melina Rizek from the New York Times that was taped earlier this summer. We have Oliver Sacks, His Own Life, a documentary portrait of the late neurologist and author Oliver Sacks, who redefined our modern understanding of the brain and the mind. We have The Artist's Wife, a poignant drama about a woman married to a famous painter and dealing with his recent dementia diagnosis, uh, while also reconnecting with her own creative side. And this stars Swedish actress Lena Olin alongside Bruce Dern. We have Native Son from 1951, and this is a a restoration. Um, This is Belgian director Pierre Chanel's adaptation of novelist Richard Wright's very controversial 1940 bestseller, Native Son, starring Wright himself in the lead role. We also have the film Myth of a Colorblind France, a documentary exploring the extraordinary, sometimes difficult lives of African American artists, authors, musicians who chose to live in Paris from the 19th century to the present. We have Softie, a documentary about the grassroots political campaign of Kenyan activist and former photojournalist Boniface Softie Mwangi during his country's 2017 elections. And we have Still Life, from acclaimed Chinese director, Zha Zhang a uh, winner of the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival in 2006.
0: And as with previous episodes, today we're going to cover all of the new films premiering this week in AFI Silver's virtual screening room, recap the films that opened in previous weeks that are currently available to view there, and then close with our programmers picks where we discuss other recommendations for what to screen at home. This is episode 22 of Silver Streams, and we are back after a two-week hiatus. We began this podcast way back in early April, shortly after we closed the doors to the AFI Silver Theater and launched our new virtual cinema program online. And we want to thank everyone out there who has been listening to the podcast, including now listeners from 24 different countries in addition to the U.S., which is amazing. When we when we began the podcast five, six months ago, Abby, Ben and I never would have expected we would have had uh, people listening from so far afield. And it's, uh, it's a wonderful surprise to see that. So thank you all for tuning in. And we also want to thank everyone who has been screening films at home from the virtual screening room. By screening these films at home, you are supporting AFI Silver. We receive a portion of the proceeds for every virtual cinema transaction that you make. So by screening at home this way, you are supporting our theater during our extended closure. Thank you all for supporting the Silver during this challenging time. And just a reminder, you can find all of the titles that we are currently offering to screen at home on our website at afi.com/silver. And when you're on our website, please be sure to sign up for our eblast in order to keep up with our latest announcements. If you have any feedback or questions, you can always email us at silverinfo@afi.com.
1: You can find the podcast each Friday posted on our website at afi.com slash silver in our Friday e-blast and across our social media channels. And we're on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all of the places that you usually find your podcasts. And we're now on Stitcher,
2: which is a new thing. Uh, Pretty cool. Just wanted to make a note that if you know anyone who exclusively listens to podcasts on Stitcher, uh, we're up on that particular provider. So That's new as of a few weeks ago. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. When you subscribe, um, it helps you get the episodes as soon as they come out. Uh, Right when we post them, they'll show up in your feed. And also subscribe and rate. Rating is uh, another thing that really helps the show, helps get the word out in the different platforms. But the best way to do that is really just telling people you know. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell anyone who you think might enjoy the show. And that's uh, the best way to get the word out.
1: And a big thank you to everyone who's streamed something from our virtual screening room over the last couple of weeks. While we've ourselves all been streaming a lot of films as part of the Virtual Toronto Film Festival. Um, among our big hits, actually, for this past weekend uh, were two kind of foodie or foodie adjacent slash drink E-type films uh, that also incorporate some great vicarious travel, which you know we are a fan of on the pod. Uh, And that's the documentary *A Chef's Voyage, which follows the celebrated Emmy and James Beard award-winning chef David Kinch and his team from their three-star Michelin restaurant in in California for a collaboration that they did with three legendary French chefs in in their restaurants in Paris, Provence, and Marseille, all lovely places to go, I'm sure. And then we also have From the Vine, which tells the story of this big city CEO played by Joe Pantoliano as he travels to southern Italy where his roots are uh, so that he can revive his grandfather's vineyard. And in the process, he kind of revitalizes the small town and reconnects with his family and his heritage. So two great films about food and wine and, and traveling and family to kind of keep you going as we enter month six of of staying at home and getting to the colder weather.
2: We also had a couple of music documentaries that are doing well in the screening room. Uh, Jimmy Carter, Rock and Roll President, was our biggest hit from the screening room this past weekend. It's uh, the fascinating story of how Jimmy Carter got a boost from his rock and roll friends uh, along the campaign. Um, Really interesting documentary, something you might not associate with Jimmy Carter being a a rock and roll president, as the title suggests, and meeting the Beatles in India. This is an inside look at the Beatles' time in India in 1968, where they went to study transcendental meditation um, on their road to making the White Album. It's uh, a deep look that we haven't seen before uh, from the point of view of the photographer who was covering um, this particular trip back in '68.
0: And one more documentary that's doing very well for us at the moment in terms of viewership is Mr. Soul. And this is a documentary portrait of the innovative PBS program Soul, Soul with an exclamation point, which ran from 1968 to 1973. Uh, And that program was produced and hosted by someone named Ellis Hazlip, And this documentary is directed by uh, Ellis's cousin, Melissa Hazlip. And just to continue on the music theme uh, here, uh, Soul regularly featured many talented musicians of the day, including people like Stevie Wonder, Earth, Wind & Fire, Cool in The Gang, Patti LaBelle, and on the jazz side, Rasan Roland Kirk, among many others. And we see and hear many of those acts here in the documentary, as well as figures from the worlds of dance, film, theater, literature, and poetry, and civil rights activism. Uh, so do check that one out if you haven't already. We're also currently screening God of the Piano, and this is a dark and twisty psychodrama from Israel's Ite Tal, and it's set in the world of music prodigies and concert recitals and features an outstanding performance from the lead actress Naima Price. So that's what's going on in the virtual screening room with all of the titles uh, currently available to screen there. The big event we have coming up at the moment that we want to tell you all about is our Latin American Film Festival. This is one of our biggest annual events every year that the AFI Silver uh, produce and hosts. This year for the first time, uh, the festival will be taking place entirely online as a virtual festival. And it opens Friday, September 25. And that's also the, the first day that this episode of the podcast is going out to listeners. It runs from Friday, September 25 to Wednesday, October 7. And all details about the films featured in the festival can be found on our website at afi.com silver.
2: And I'll mention a couple titles from the festival. Uh, our opening night selection is Emma. This is an electrifying psychological dance drama set in the beautiful town of Valparaiso uh, from the Chilean director Pablo Larraín starring Mariana Di Jordano and Gael Garcia Bernal. We talked a little bit about this one in our last episode um, when we went deep into some of our picks for the festival overall. And our closing night selection, Submersible. This is a, a taut, expertly calibrated thriller that takes place entirely aboard a cramped makeshift submarine on a drug run from the coast of Ecuador toward North America. And it's from Ecuadorian director Alfredo León León, two films definitely to look out for in the lineup.
1: And those are two of 26 films, actually, that we have in the festival from 20 countries. Seven of the films are U.S. premieres, so they've never been seen before in in the United States. Five of the films also have Q&As with them. Uh, including uh, submersible, which which Ben was just talking about, our closing night film. Uh, so there's a lot to to dig into with the festival, and a lot to stay at home watching as as we get into the the cold fall weather and looking to snuggle up with a with a good movie.
0: Yeah, there's many great films featured in this year's lineup, and just a. To- uh amplify on a point that ben made before uh you can hear uh our programming team discussing several of these uh in further detail on the previous episode of the podcast episode 21 where we discuss uh our programmers picks for that week were focused on the at the time just uh just announced lineup for the latin american film festivals so we discuss emma and la llorona and fauna uh which are three of the standout titles in this year's lineup but you can read about everything featured uh, in the lineup, again, on our website, uh, afi.com slash silver. And just uh, two things to mention, all of the films are available to anyone who is in the states of Maryland, Virginia, or the District of Columbia. Many of the films, uh, approximately half of the films in the lineup, are viewable by anyone anywhere in the United States or the U.S. territories. So Uh, know that going in um, and hopefully many of you who are tuning in from a little further afield from us here in the D.C. area uh, will, will check out some of these films. Tickets and passes are going fast, so please get yours now. And the Latin American Film Festival is not the only film festival we have coming up. We just announced coming up immediately after the Latin American Film Festival ends, we will be hosting the Spooky Movie International Horror Film Festival. Uh, Again, taking place entirely online this year. Uh, This year's edition of Spooky Movie is going to run from October 8 through 15. So literally the day that we wrap up on Laugh, the very next day, we're going to kick off Spooky. And we have uh, a really terrific lineup in the works. At the moment, we have announced just one film, the opening night film. Uh, which is the high-octane zombie film Get the Hell Out from Taiwan, uh, which was a, a real sensation in the, uh, the lineup at the Toronto Film Festival, the Midnight Madness section, which Abby mentioned a little earlier. Uh, all three of us were uh, attending the, the Toronto Film Festival online virtually this year and uh, got to see it there. And, and now just a week or two later, we're going to be featuring it in the spooky lineup we will be announcing the full lineup for the spooky movie film festival on Tuesday, September 29. So those of you who are horror and genre fans, please mark that date down to check back and and see the the full lineup. Uh, Right now, the opening night film, again, get the hell out has been announced tickets are on sale for that one and past sales are now active for spooky as well.
2: And I highly, highly recommend that that opening night feature that Todd mentioned get the hell out. It was Uh, Kind of a surprise for me in the lineup. I didn't know what to expect, but it was among one of my favorite films uh, in the festival. And it's pretty relentless, pretty nonstop, very bloody, very gory, also very funny. Um, So highly recommend that one if you're into all those things. And up first this week in the virtual screening room is the new documentary Oliver Sacks, His Own Life from director Rick Burns. The film follows, as the title would imply, Oliver Sacks, and is a biography of his life. Um, On January fifteenth, 2015, a few weeks before completing his autobiographical memoir, the writer and neurologist learns that he has a rare form of cancer that's been treated from nine years ago, but it's returned. It's returned and he only has a few months left to live. So a few weeks after that, he sits down with director Rick Burns, brother of Ken Burns, uh, the documentarian, for a series of marathon film interviews in his apartment in New York. It takes place over the course of five days and 80 hours um, in February. And there would be three more occasions in April and June, but most of it concentrated there in those 80 hours. And he's surrounded by his family, friends, books and minerals, and just tons of notebooks from decades of thinking and writing all about the brain. Uh, he talks about his life and his work, his dreams and fears, his abiding sense of wonder at the natural world, the place of human beings within it, and his place within the world. Uh, he spoke with astonishing candor and clear-sightedness. Um, is a profoundly gifted man. At, at the age of 81, he's facing death, with remarkable courage and vitality and to the the very end of of his days. Um, He was determined to come to grips with what his life meant overall and what it meant to be, as he put it, a sentient being on this beautiful planet. Drawing from these riveting and profoundly moving reflections, uh, the film also features nearly two dozen deeply revealing and personal interviews with other people, with family members, colleagues, patients, and close friends including Jonathan Miller, Robert Silvers, Temple Grandin, Roberto Colasso, Paul Thoreau, Isabel Rapin, Billy Hayes, and many others. Um, the film also draws on a unique access to these extensive archives of the Oliver Sacks Foundation. So we see a lot of archival, mostly pictures, but some footage from his, uh, his days as a student and as a, an early uh, neurologist. Um, the, the film is partially a biography of an extraordinary physician and a writer who was dogged by his own neuroses and by the rejection of his medical colleagues, uh, but nonetheless, he redefined for millions of readers the nature of the human mind and through a simple act of telling profoundly compassionate stories. It's also really a deeply illuminating exploration of the science of human consciousness and the nature of subjectivity and the meditation on the deep and intimate relationship between art, science, and storytelling. And that kind of unique relationship is something that Oliver Sacks kind of meets at the intersection of all of those. And you see that in his personality and in his history and just how personal and jovial he is up to the very end, and how empathetic he is. We see him uh, treating patients um, post his diagnosis and meeting with his friends and family, praising his colleagues. He, he's always very upbeat and very, um, and very engaging. It's a very excellent documentary to watch. If you don't know anything about Oliver Sacks, if maybe this is the first time you're getting a, a deep dive into his life, Um, It's a great window into the man and his work. And if you do know about him, it's a really good way to get a closer look and see his personality again and enjoy it for enjoying for what he is and for who he was uh, a brilliant man and uh, a really great person.
0: So Ben, I have a, a certain amount of familiarity with Oliver Sacks, just in terms of him being um, the figure that he was, and and a personality, and a, and a thinker, and an author. But I, you know, I'm, I have not read his books. I'm just curious, how familiar were you with him uh, going into the documentary, and you know, how much is that a prerequisite going in for the audience?
2: Yeah, I think it's very much not a prerequisite. Um, I'm someone who knows probably even less about Oliver Sacks or knew even less than, than you might have, or, uh, or maybe most of our listeners do. I I think I'd heard the the titles of his books and his name, but uh, didn't know much about him going in. So I think the film, like I said, it's if you know nothing, it's gonna be a really great primer and you're gonna find out a lot of really interesting facts about someone who, for me, I knew maybe is just someone who studied the brain, but you don't know about his personal life, which the film really gets into. Uh, including his uh, coming out as a young man and becoming uh, a bodybuilder um, specifically after he came out he became a, a bodybuilder to try to impress uh, someone he had a crush on and the the logic there was not only to impress him but to to gain confidence in himself uh, to be more uh, of a confident person when approaching this this uh, suitor and he did not succeed in that he was still very embarrassed but now very big very strong and actually started entering bodybuilding competitions in in california so it's it's an interesting thing and not only that he's seen riding motorcycles and uh, talks about his addiction to to amphetamines um a lot of stuff you really don't expect when you start the film uh thinking of oliver saxon and and what he's like in his older age wow
0: yeah that's a lot (laughs)
1: Yeah, and it's a similar thing for me. I mean, I know of him as as this neurologist, and I've read his, his book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, and other clinical tales, uh, quite some time ago, actually. And I really like the way that he writes, um, although I don't think I've ever heard him actually interviewed. So I am really curious to hear what he has to say and also to hear about his background, which... As you uh, as you mentioned, is is very interesting, and it does sound like the film strikes a really nice balance between uh, Oliver Sacks's kind of personal story and and his work in in neurology and in science.
2: Yeah, it really does. It's um, it introduces concepts that he introduced uh, in terms of treatments that were controversial at the time and had him kind of ostracized a little bit from his colleagues uh, until he published them, and I think that kind of um, open the door for, for the treatments that he did. But yeah, his, his personal life is is well-documented and getting to know him as a person is, is really a treat. It's something that you appreciate quite a bit by the very end here. You're taken by him and really enjoy uh, hearing him speak about anything really.
0: And Ben, just one more question, because you you shared with us some of those details from his uh, younger, wilder years, uh, does he relate any sort of major life event or some sort of break uh, that, that happens along the way in his career um, as far as transitioning from, from that period in his life to you know, the, 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 the writer and thinker that we, we now know him to be?
2: Yeah, I think that part of it is, um, is due to his sobriety. Um, there's a certain point where he realizes what he's, he's doing to himself physically and how it's affecting his mind. Um, because he himself um, suffered from from various things uh, I mentioned the neuroses and uh, I think that um, once he decided that he was going to sober up and um, change his path a little bit he he went got a bit more serious with uh, the studies and was taken a bit more seriously but also as I mentioned still some of his thoughts and uh, theories were controversial so um, there's that and there was actually a. a Mention mentioned in the film that um, Sachs talks about a few suicide attempts or near suicide attempts. So he, he was very down on himself uh, for a while there, but came around. And I think part of that is also due to um, maybe getting more acceptance within the community and being able to practice uh, the things that he was putting into print. So that's Oliver Sachs, his own life from
1: our friends at Zeitgeist Films and Kino Lorber. So next up in the virtual screening room this week is The Artist's Wife, which is coming to us from Strand Releasing. Uh, this is the second feature from director Tom Dolby, who you may know from his 2014 film Last Weekend. Uh, he's also known as a producer with his company Waters End Productions, which has produced many, many films, in, including Luca Guadagnino's Call Me By Your Name and also Ira Sachs' Little Men. And the artist's wife tells the story of Claire, who's the wife of a renowned abstract artist called Richard Smithson. And the film gets started just as Claire is plunged into this late life crisis as her husband is diagnosed with dementia, just as he is simultaneously preparing for what was to be his final show. And so from the outset, we see the couple's pretty idyllic domestic life in the Hamptons, slowly kind of falling apart. Uh, Richard's moods become increasingly erratic, his his memories fading, he begins causing scenes at the new school where he teaches, and Claire's world looks kind of set to implode as she tries to shield his condition from the art community, but also in a way from herself, and she's, she's kind of in denial. And in the midst of all this, she's also trying to reconnect Richard with his estranged daughter from a previous marriage and with his grandson, who he's he's never actually met. And this brings a whole new set of challenges with it. And at the same time, she's also experiencing kind of a creative renewal she's experiencing the loss of her world as she knew it but she also begins to kind of step out of her husband's shadow uh, we learn that she was once a promising painter herself and she kind of gave that up to support her husband's career and now she's she's almost forced to kind of reconnect with that side of herself and to start taking control of her life's trajectory on her own terms Claire is played by Swedish actress Lena Olin who got her start in smaller roles in films, directed by Ingmar Bergman, Face to Face, Fanny and Alexander. Uh, she had her English language debut in 1988, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, and she was Oscar nominated the following year for Enemies, A Love Story. Uh, she's also known for her recent roles in television, in the series Alias, and also Mindhunter. Uh, Richard is played by two-time Oscar nominee Bruce Dern, of course, the father of Laura Dern. Um, and he's also an Oscar nominee. He's nominated for his roles in Coming Home in Nebraska. And both actors are excellent here, as would be expected. Um, but they're all re- also really good together. Uh, they have really great on-screen chemistry and, and their relationship is very believable. And, you know, many films have tackled the subject of Alzheimer's and and dementia, including films like Still Alice, for which Julianne Moore won won an Oscar, and Away From Her, for which June Christie was was Oscar nominated. Uh, And I think that The Artist's Wife can certainly be considered alongside these films. Um, But it also takes a very unconventional approach by focusing, as its title suggests, on Lena Olin's character rather than on her ailing husband, Uh, You know, this is really her story and it's Olin's performance that drives the film forward. And I actually think some comparisons will probably be made or maybe they've already been made to the character played by Glenn Close in the 2017 film, The Wife, for which she was Oscar nominated. And she plays this woman who has spent decades kind of sacrificing her own talent and dreams and ambitions to support her author husband. Um, And I don't think this is as dark as The Wife, uh, but there are certainly elements in common. Um, And I think Tom Dolby has done a really great job centering the film on a perspective that of a woman in her 60s, dealing with everything that life can throw at her that we frankly don't really see often enough in, in film. I'll also mention that director Tom Dolby conceived of this film in a way to pay tribute to his mother, who cared for his father, Ray Dolby, uh, after his Alzheimer's diagnosis. And by the way, if you're thinking the surname Dolby sounds familiar, yes, it is that Dolby. Ray Dolby was uh, the audio engineering pioneer who founded Dolby Laboratories. And so clearly this is a really personal film for, for Tom Dolby. And I think that really comes through in the authenticity and the, the lived-in quality of the storytelling. And, you know, you might need a tissue or two to get through the film. Yeah, there's some difficult moments, there are some sad moments. But actually it's also filled with humour and, and moments of joy. So there's a lot to enjoy and appreciate here.
0: So Abby, being that Richard Smithson is an abstract expressionist painter, and he and his wife are resident in the Hamptons, how much do you think we're supposed to read them, uh, read this couple as some kind of version of Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I was I was thinking about that as I was watching the film, actually. And I think the character of Richard Smithson is definitely a nod to, to Jackson Pollock, because artwork could certainly be considered abstract expressionist, the paintings that we, that we see in the film. He's of a similar generation, although he's a slightly younger. Uh, and of course, Pollock didn't live long enough to be dealing with Alzheimer's, but I definitely think there are echoes of his relationship with, with Lee Krasner, who he was married to, of course, you know, much like uh, Lena Olin's character, Krasner was herself an accomplished artist who made huge contributions to abstract expressionism, but was kind of overshadowed by Pollock in his career. Um, and of course, as you mentioned, yes, they lived in the Hamptons. So there's, there's that connection too. And I have read a couple of interviews uh, with Tom Dolby saying that he, he did have Lee Krasner in mind when he was uh, conceiving of, of Lena Olin's character.
0: And then I've got to ask you for what, what your take is on the, on the movie's prop paintings. This is something that, that you and I have discussed here and there. With various movies, and you know whether or not the artwork that's on display—that's you know fictional within the world of the movie—is convincing as artwork. So, so how are the prop paintings uh, here in the artist's wife?
1: They're pretty good. They're pretty convincing as as kind of generic abstract expressionist works. Um, But you know, you see both the work of Richard Smithson and the work of his wife, and there's kind of a twist in there that I'm not going to reveal. But uh, yeah, you, you you see both of their work in the film. Okay, so that's the artist's wife coming to us from Strand Releasing.
0: Okay, so the next film we have debuting in the virtual screening room this week is Native Son from 1951. And if you've seen this film version of Richard Wright's 1940 novel on home video, maybe back in the 80s or 90s, I need to ask you to set aside what you saw back then and give this film another chance. That version of the film was significantly cut down by nearly 30 minutes, and it had been transferred from substandard original materials. Uh, So in no way does it represent what the actual film that that was made and, and released in 1951 actually was. But now, thanks to the work of several international film archives, including the U.S. Library of Congress, now we have a restored and uncut version of the film. Uh, Again, the film uh, came out in 1951 based on Richard Wright's novel from 1940. The fact that this movie was made, adapting this novel at this point in time, really just kind of boggles the mind. Being as Wright's novel has an exploration of society's fault lines along issues of race and class in late 30s Chicago, a portrait of a corrupt law enforcement and justice system, And all of this coming from uh, the author, Richard Wright, who at the time was a member of the Communist Party. So the fact that this got turned into a movie in in 1951 is not something one would expect to have happened, knowing what we do about Hollywood history. And therein lies a tale. So uh, there's no way Hollywood would have touched this novel at at this point in time, 1951. Uh, Aside from... uh, the, the racial conflict that's inherent in the narrative. Uh, this is just an extremely dark narrative involving murder and, and misery uh, alongside the sociopolitical critique uh, in the novel. Also at the time, uh, the communist witch hunts and enforcement of the blacklist in Hollywood against suspected communists had just revved up. So for Hollywood in 1951, this was always going to be a hard pass. Reportedly, there was some interest in adapting the novel into a feature film in Europe around this time, uh, and some, some interesting names involved with that. Roberto Rossellini, uh, the godfather of Italian neorealism. Uh, He had indicated some, some interest, and apparently there were some level of conversations. Also from France, uh, director Marcel Carnet, uh, along with the screenwriter Jacques Prévert, uh, they had collaborated on Children of Paradise, most famously. Uh, apparently they had indicated some interest as well. And Europe does play a role in the fact that the, this movie was ultimately made in that it it was a, a European director, a Belgian filmmaker named Pierre Chanel who directed the film, but not in Europe. Actually, it was made in South America. So Chanel, along with the Uruguayan producer, Jaime Prades, they got the funding together to make the film uh, in Argentina. Uh, so, Native Son. When you when you see it, and you see its depiction of Chicago, understand what you're seeing. This was entirely made down in Buenos Aires on uh, sound stages at a uh, Argentine studio called Sono Film, and this was the biggest film made in Argentina at that time. Uh, again, the what you see of Chicago, uh, what you see in terms of the interiors, all those sets that's that's taking place down in Buenos Aires. The crew did do some location shooting in Chicago at the time just for establishing shots of scenes of the city, but all of the interiors and, and the, uh, the majority of the action you see, that's, those, those are sound stages uh, on, on, the, on the lot of Sono film in Buenos Aires, Argentina. The American cast for the majority of the speaking roles, they, everyone traveled down to Buenos Aires to make the film. The background actors would be local Argentine actors certainly in the non-speaking roles and this gets at the interesting casting of this version of native sun the cast doesn't include any big names uh, per se in terms of the actors with the exception of one and that's the actor in the lead role of bigger thomas that role is played by richard wright himself the author of the novel now richard wright was by no means an actor but the concept that the director and producer and Wright, who was very involved with the making of this film, both the conception of transferring it into film and ultimately the casting, they embrace this as an interesting idea. And on paper, it is an interesting idea. Um, but pretty much everyone agrees uh, who has seen the film and seen it properly, seen it in its full uncut form, is that Wright is just not really good as an actor, um, unfortunately. Uh, and also, he's much much older than the character Bigger Thomas is supposed to be. In 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 the book, he's supposed to be twenty, and I think they uh, slightly adjust the age in in the film to like mid twenties. But Richard Wright is clearly a, a man in his forties, nearly fifty, and well, that just fails to convince. So unfortunately, this is the the film's weak spot. Film historian Donald Bogle has labeled. Uh, Wright's performance, the movie's greatest liability, and it is. It's 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 a problem with the movie. Which, but that's not to say that the movie is completely sunk by that. And there's also an argument to be made that this unusual casting of Richard Wright in the role has its a, a certain quality that makes something interesting out of what is uh, you know otherwise a, a conventional detriment. That the fact that Richard Wright isn't clearly a match for the casting gives gives the film a sort of a quirky surreal quality because we we know that he's not exactly right to play Bigger Thomas. So it lends something to the increasingly Kafkaesque events of the film. Uh that there's there's an argument to be made that the that the non-Saturn casting works in an interesting way. And this is also where something of a revisionist take on seeing the film comes in seeing it, it through the lens of film noir. And I think this is where after all these years, the film really seems at home uh, because through the lens of noir tradition, this story of fatalistic doom and, and showing up the hypocrisies of society, the thin line between law abiding and law breaking really, really clicks really, really seems at home. Back in the 50s, U.S. audiences didn't get to see this film this way. The film did have a proper release uh, internationally, including in Argentina. But by the time uh, the U.S. release came about, this was still an era where films had to pass local censor boards and uh, they had the power to order cuts. And this film was cut mercilessly by uh, the the various local censor boards in the U.S., beginning with New York and, and going from there. And this left the film not just cut down in length, but merely in length, but mutilated in terms of making sense, uh, let alone demonstrating any of its artistry. But now, many, many years later, thankfully, we have this restoration. Uh, Since the restoration was first unveiled in 2012, A lot of the screenings that have been presented have been done by Eddie Muller's Film Noir Foundation and the various Noir City film festivals, including right here at AFI Silver in 2013. And when we screened the film that year, it included a great discussion with Eddie and the Smithsonian's Edgardo Krebs, uh, who was involved in helping shepherd this film uh, over the years to its eventual restoration, uh, as well as the great jazz critic Stanley Crouch, who sadly just passed away this past week. Uh, Native Son is now getting a proper release through Kino Lorber, and we're very proud to be screening it in our virtual screening room. Allowing for the many quirks of this film's production and execution, uh, there is definitely a lot to appreciate and reflect on in this uniquely thought-provoking and occasionally visionary film.
2: And given all the, the difficulties and the improbabilities of the film getting made and, and how it was made, it's kind of a marvel that, that it was uh, completed at all, and especially... Um, as it's kind of a, a tough thing to adapt, um, maybe Richard Wright's involvement was was part of the reason why it, it was really so successful in the end as an adaptation of, of the book.
0: Yeah I mean we in the context of discussing this film and and you know turning this novel into this film, there's the, the specifics of um, what what's what's involved in this book, but really all books present challenges uh, in terms of adaptation and how well they might. Lend themselves to film adaptation, how well they might transfer from one medium to another before you get into what the content is and if that is something that uh, might be um, scaring off the commercial side of of the business. Uh, again, some could say that it's reductive to to talk about the this story in in terms of a crime story film noir, but I, I really think that it clicks together with uh, all of these elements that we associate with with the genre um, and certainly. Audiences who have uh, been introduced to the film um, in 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 the setting of the film noir festivals have been very receptive to it uh, and, and found a lot to like about this film, even with its unusual aspects uh, in terms of the, mainly the casting. But, you know, you, you kind of sense that it's not a Hollywood studio in some ways. It's not that it's substandard quality. There's just a, a little a little bit off, a little slightly different tone to things a belgian director and and working in argentina but again i think that lends something occasionally dreamlike and just a little different and little edge to to the way the story unfolds for the viewer
1: and then i have to ask you you know how convincing a stand-in for chicago is is uh, buenos aires or the, the sets that they built in in buenos aires to shoot this well one answer would be as convincing as
0: as most other films made in 1951 on a on a studio setting that have just a couple establishing shots uh, uh, periodically through the movie to remind you what city it's supposed to be in but most of the movie is is interiors and you know, the, the sets look fine they don't they don't look cheap or or flimsy or, or or again in any way substandard compared to what you would get for hollywood sets they're they're good and there's the establishing shots of Chicago to signal to the viewer in the same way that other Hollywood films of the era would um but there's one interesting aspect to consider again night, making this film in in the very early fifties so even though the majority of films were done this way um, uh with these sort of conventions of of using sets and just patching in a little bit of establishing shots. This is also the moment in time we mentioned Rossellini a few minutes ago, uh, where neorealism and the vogue for using real locations was starting to make an inroads and starting to get people involved in commercial filmmaking to reconsider uh, whether, whether everything should be on a Hollywood stage set or if they should get out into real locations more. Uh, So this is arriving just, just at the moment in time when, that idea was starting to come in, but we can't we can't judge it differently. It's 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 completely representative of how again most films at the time were being made. And uh, and I'll just add to that, uh, Abby Ben and I, I know we had talked about the fact that there are other versions that were made years later of of Native Son, and one might assume well it could be done better later because you know the censorship boards went away and there's more freedom of expression and maybe more of an interest in tackling some of these tough issues in terms of uh, racial violence and, and justice issues. But I think anyone who has surveyed the various versions out there over the years might be surprised to find that this version from 1951, despite all the challenges of making it at that time, really holds up well as, uh, as true to the novel.
1: Well, I'm excited to, to see it finally and glad that we have the opportunity.
0: Yeah, and that it's uh, coming back around now as a as a proper release from Kino Lorber. So once again, all of you Noir fans, and anyone uh, certainly anyone familiar with with Richard Wright's writing uh, and this particular novel, Native Son, uh, do consider checking it out this week. Uh, again, coming to us from Kino Lorber.
2: And up next in the screening room, we have Myth of a Colorblind France from director Alan Govenar. Myth of a Colorblind France explores the extraordinary and sometimes difficult lives of Black Americans in Paris from the 19th century to the present day. For more than a century, Black artists, authors, musicians, and others have traveled to Paris to liberate themselves from the racism of the United States. Writer, folklorist, photographer, and filmmaker Alan Gauvinar's new documentary investigates what made these artists choose France, why the friends by them, and to what extent was France truly colorblind? The film also takes a look at the ways that racism only came from the United States, but also those fleeing from Africa and other artists of color in France today. The film explores the lives and careers of African Americans who immigrated to Paris, including Josephine Baker, James Baldwin, Richard Wright, Buford Delaney, Augusta Savage, Barbara Trace Rebold, Sidney Boucher, and Louis Smully-Jones, among many more. The documentary also includes rare home video footage of Henry Osawa Tanner in Paris. Myth of a Colorblind France features interviews with Michel Fabre, the author of a landmark bi- biography on Richard Wright, the poet James Emmanuel, historian Tyler Stovall, filmmaker Thomas Allen Harris, graffiti artist Quick, his bastard, African drummer Kareem Touré, and many, many more. And of course, as the title would suggest, Myth of a Colorblind France dispels the fact that it is a myth that uh, France is colorblind. One that was really started post-World War I uh, with soldiers writing back letters uh, about how they felt freer and not uh, not subject to to racism um, as directly in, in France and led a lot of artists to, to make the pilgrimage there. Um, but even before then, you see um, a part of the film talking about people in New Orleans, uh, wealthy families who would send their kids to study in Paris. So Black families um, who would send their kids there because it was a much better place for them to to get educated. Um, they couldn't really do so in the U.S. at the time. So it starts from there and it goes through to the present day, covering a, a lot of the 20s, 30s jazz age, and uh, and
0: beyond. So Ben, it's kind of an interesting coincidence this week that we are, are uh, featuring Native Son uh, starring Richard Wright and based on his novel uh, this week in the virtual screening room and, and now this documentary comes along which also in, includes uh, Richard Wright as one of the people profiled in it and I believe Wright moved to France right around the time of the movie like right after the movie uh, had come out and the terrible disappointment about the US release being so compromised for it.
2: Yeah, it's definitely interesting timing. Um, in Myth of a Colorblind France, uh, there's no mention of the film specifically, but we do get a couple stories about um, Richard Wright and specifically one that's probably been heard by some some of our listeners, but not everyone, uh, about how he and James Baldwin had it out at a cafe. Um, because Baldwin had written critically about Native Sun specifically, um, and of course Richard Wright was not was not having it. He wasn't really uh, on board with, with his critiques uh, of the book. Um, so there's there's an interesting connection there. And they talk a little bit about his his communist uh, politics, but only briefly. But um, yeah, it's a curious connection uh, between those two films this week.
1: And Ben, I also want to ask you. I haven't seen the film yet, but is is Melvin Van Peebles uh, among the interviewees at all? Because I know he lived in Paris for a while, and actually he shot his first feature length film there in in nineteen in the late sixties, I think. Story of a Three Day Pass. So I just wondered if he's he's featured at all. So
2: he's not featured, um, which is is curious. But I think deliberate here uh, by Govnar in in the way that he's telling the story and and focusing mainly on on poets and writers uh, and musicians, of course. I mentioned the 20s, 30s, jazz age uh, sort of thing that he focuses on and doesn't really talk about any filmmakers. So the film is is pretty specific in who we're talking about here. But beyond that, it goes larger into uh, the ways in which Racism and prejudice present itself um, in France specifically and even in, in Europe at, at large. Um, there's there's talk about uh, some of these artists living in other countries um, as well as Paris or as well as France, rather. Um, so, yeah, um, no, no Van Peebles in this one, uh, but still still well worth watching for some more um, smaller artists who you might get to learn some of their stories and check out their work. So that's Myth of a Colorblind France from our friends at First Run Features.
1: So next up is the documentary Softy, which is coming to us from David Magdell and Associates, who also um, brought us Mr. Soul, which is currently in the screening room. And Softy won the World Cinema Documentary Special Jury Award for editing at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival, where it had its world premiere earlier this year. And then I had a chance to see it at the Berlin Film Festival in February, where I was impressed both by the film and by the film's central subject, uh, a 30-something Kenyan photojournalist and political activist called Boniface Softi Mwangi. Um, he had long fought injustices in, in the kleptocratic government in his home country, particularly in the violent aftermath of, of the 2007 elections, before taking the next step by running for office in a regional Kenyan election. And this is the journey that we see in the film. And through Bonnie Face's journey, we learn not only about the blood, sweat and tears, quite literally in some cases, involved in running a grassroots political campaign in a space in which running a clean and uncorrupted race seems almost impossible. But we also get a crash course on Kenyan political history and a stark warning about the dangers of unchecked political power. And through Boniface in the film, we learn how Under British rule, a de facto caste system was put into place in Kenya, which basically pitted tribes against one another and ended up enduring long after the country's independence 60 years ago. Uh, And it's this colonialist division that contemporary politicians have maintained in order to motivate voters. And so you essentially have two political dynasties dominating the country, appealing to voters through this tribal pride. And when that fails, resorting basically to outright bribery in order to secure votes. And this is why power has remained within certain wealthy political families uh, for generations and why politicians have continued to secure office without really accomplishing anything for their constituents. Uh, And it's all of this that Boniface wants to change, uh, which, as you can imagine, is a massive and towering task. And from the moment that Boniface decides to run in the film, he responds to each challenge with with optimism and calmness. But it becomes clear that running a clean campaign, as I mentioned, against these corrupt opponents is really hard to do, not to mention really dangerous. And Boniface soon finds that challenging these dominant political dynasties is, is putting his family at risk. And so the film is also about... Exploring the complexities of of Boniface balancing his deep love of his country with the needs of his family. And his wife and Jiri and their three children are also key to the film. Um, We see them as as they go through supporting Boniface. And we also see his day-to-day life as a father and husband. And how he's putting all of this on the line to, to challenge the system that's in place in Kenya. And the film does document some quite alarming events throughout, including the torture and murder of an official who was charged with keeping the elections fair and safe in 2017. And we learn that during the making of this film alone, 30 activists have either gone missing or been killed. so Boniface is putting himself in very real tangible danger and his wife Njiri actually moves herself and her kids to New Jersey at, at one point while he's running for office to keep himself safe. The film is directed by Kenyan filmmaker Sam Soko. Uh, this is his debut feature, but he's long worked on politically and socially engaged projects in film and music in Kenya His company, LBX Africa, also produced the uh, 2018 Academy Award nominated short film, "Wata Wate. Uh, And like Boniface, he's a young creative who has blended his artistic endeavors with his activism and in doing so, also put himself at risk. Um, Apparently, Sam Soko met Boniface while he was making a short activist video manual. And the pair went on to co-found a a creative and activist hub in, in Kenya. And Soka would go along to the protests that Boniface was attending and film what was happening. And some of this footage, a lot of it made its way into this film. Um, this is a very action-packed, immersive film. You know, you do really feel like you're there on the ground with Boniface. Um, It's not a dry political documentary full of talking heads. It's a very dynamic piece of filmmaking, which is appropriate because it's depicting a very dynamic individual against the backdrop of a country that's in transition and in turmoil. Um, And in many ways, this actually plays more like a thriller than, than a documentary. And, you know, right now, this is probably a film that's more of a reminder than any celebrity PSA to get out and exercise your right to vote in November because that's as we see in this film certainly not a right any of us can or should take for granted and in thinking about this film again since I watched it in February I'm actually reminded of another film that we have coming up in the AFI Latin American Film Festival called Stateless um, which is about a young attorney in the Dominican Republic a Dominican woman of Haitian descent who launches a grassroots campaign um, to take on electoral corruption, but also advocate for social justice and the reuniting of families split apart by the Dominican Republic's Supreme Court ruling that stripped the citizenship of anyone with Haitian parents living in the country. And in both films, we see these dedicated, driven, idealistic young people, uh, both parents and wanting, you know, like the lives of their children to be, to be different. Um, And we see them going up against these Goliath-like, labyrinthine, Kafkaesque political systems and in in the process really risking not only their own safety, but that of their families. Um, And I also mentioned that Softy recently became the first African film to be selected as the opening night of the Hot Docs Film Festival in, in Canada, which took place all online this year. And Stateless was also screened in that festival, and it won uh, the special jury prize for a Canadian feature. So I'm definitely going to suggest watching Softy and Stateless as as a double feature, as you can probably guess. But yeah, I I really liked Softy a lot, and highly recommend it.
2: Uh, so Abby, you mentioned that uh, Boniface was a uh, photojournalist, and that's kind of how he got started in his activism. Um, does the film look at that? At- at all or is it really more focused on his uh, campaigning and and that sort of thing is there s- sort of story of his genesis
1: yeah i mean the film definitely mm-hmm. looks at his career trajectory from from his time as a photojournalist mm-hmm. some of which of course was spent covering the 2007 elections in in kenya and it, you know and then it goes right up to him running for office Um, And it definitely shows how his activism was grounded in and, and definitely spurred on by what he witnessed during his time covering politics in Kenya as, as a journalist. So it's all very much tied together and you do get to see some of his work in the film. Um, It's very, very impressive. Um, So yeah, it's a, it's a great portrait if you will, no pun intended of, of this, uh, this young man and, and all of the many, many things that he's done with his life up to the now.
0: And Abby, I, I know that you liked this film a lot. The moment you saw it back in Berlin and that we had it on our, our list, uh, keeping track of films that were candidates to include in our new African film festival, which we'll, we'll do again in, in March. And it's, you know, the fact that the movie's now coming out as a, as a virtual cinema release, we're kind of getting a, a head start on, uh, the African cinema that, uh, Uh, we'll we'll eventually be doing in that film festival setting. But this is kind of like a sort of an early opportunity for people who are looking forward to that event.
1: Definitely. Yeah. I came out of that screening in Berlin and immediately put this on the list for a new African film festival next year. Um, But here we are and it's coming out right now, which, which is great. So we're able to feature it in, in the virtual screening room and who knows, maybe Sam will have a, a new film by, by next year. Um, he's he's certainly a talented young filmmaker and and I'm sure he's working on something so that's softy coming to us from David Magdell and associates
0: okay so also opening this week in our virtual screening room is another repertory classic uh, the film Still Life and this is from the acclaimed Chinese filmmaker Jia Zhangke and this film came out in 2006. So it's a a very recent classic. And in that year, it won the Golden Lion, the top award at the Venice Film Festival. And this really represented uh, an arrival for Ja on the world stage of international cinema. At that point in his still young career, he had only made three previous features, Platform from 2000, Unknown Pleasures 2002 and the World 2004 uh, along with a handful of, of short films. And all of his early films depict life in the rapidly industrializing, rapidly changing China of the early 21st century, combining neo-realistic settings, And casts, uh, often including non-professional actors, with kind of a quasi-documentary-like observational eye for the surroundings that these characters are living in. But still, life represented a leap to something bigger in terms of scale, uh, literally and figuratively, as the setting this time involved the imminent completion of the Three Gorges Dam and its hydroelectric power plant on the Yangtze River in 2006. Uh, I'm assuming for many of our listeners, they're at least familiar with Three Gorges Dam. It certainly had a lot of coverage in the years, uh, the many years uh, in which construction took place before it ultimately was completed in 2006. Uh, and this unfortunately, uh, this massive, massive dam project unfortunately caused, uh, necessitated the flooding of several towns and villages uh, in, in the valley affected by where the water was displaced, including the city of Fangzhi. Uh Ultimately, the, the area affected caused the displacement of over 1 million people. And these areas had been inhabited by human beings for well over two thousand years, uh, and were now about to be permanently covered up by the by the waters of the massive dam. And while this was is you know now past tense, undeniably a, a great feat of engineering, and uh, resulted in the largest power plant in the world. Uh, the dam has been criticized uh, when it was a project and, and even now that it's, it's there in place for its heavy archaeological losses and environment-altering price that had to be paid for it. So that is the backdrop of what's happening in still life. But Jia's dramatic approach to telling the story centers on two characters. Han, played by Han Songming, is a poor miner uh, who has spent all of his money in order to travel to Fangji. Desperate to find his long estranged wife and child who had moved there many, many years ago and who had, he hasn't seen all during this time, uh, something like 16 years ago since they since they were separated as a family. And Hong's story is played in counterpoint to that of Shen Hong, played by Zhao Dao. Uh, and, and Shen is a nurse married to an engineer who is working on the dam project and they these two characters haven 't been separated as long as Han and his long estranged family have been uh, and and Shen and her husband enjoy much more wealth in in their lives, but Shen is also concerned uh, about the state of her union and that her husband may be straying, uh, and that their relationship too may be straining under this massive disruption of uh, caused by the lengthy separation in their lives and drastically changing circumstances. So you can imagine how topical and authoritative this film was when it arrived in 2006. Now revisiting it just a decade and a half later, the narrative still feels urgent uh, and the topicality undiminished, even if the specific events are now have now become past tense. Because all of the specific events here have universal resonance in terms of the fragility of society and environmental peril. So I highly recommend seeing this film, whether you're seeing it for the first time or revisiting it uh, now, several years after having first seen it, and consider it in light of um, all the subsequent events uh, uh, in China, specifically um, in terms of socio politics and and environment, but but not just China. It has uh, certainly has resonance and application um, all around the world.
2: Yeah, we're glad it's gotten this this new restoration, and uh, you've had a chance to to revisit it after all these years. And after taking a look at this one, one of his, his early films, would you say that this is near the top of your Giazhenkade list? Or are you um, thinking maybe some of his newer ones? Because of course he's gotten much bigger as as a filmmaker in world cinema. His name is, is much more well-known. Some of his newer films are much more well-known as well, but he really kind of rose to prominence with this one.
0: Yeah, all of his films are worthwhile. Um, Undoubtedly. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I don't, um, I I've seen most of his films at this point. This one really feels like a capper of his early period. Um, you know, the, the earliest ones were comparatively lower budgets and, um, maybe simpler, even spare in terms of, of what the, the narrative architecture was. And, and this one really just feels like a culmination of those first three or four. Lately, his sort of second phase period, I really like the films he's been making lately. Uh, my my favorite of all of his films is A Touch of Sin from 2013, which I just think is outstanding. And he followed that up with Mountains Made Apart and Ashes Purest White. Most of these we have featured at The Silver at one point or another. And I, I really like how in his later period, he's embraced more narrative construction and, and more sort of genre sensibilities, even though he's doing really complex and innovative things with that. But the earlier films seem a bit spare in those regards compared to how he's moved on in the, the latter portion of his career. But without a doubt, taken as a whole, it's, it's a, it's a fantastic, uh, filmography to explore, you know, through, through all of the phases. And then, um, anytime we talk about Zha Junke and his filmography, we also have to talk about, uh, the work of the actress Zhao Dao, who is in all of his films, uh, in, in the lead role. And she's a tremendous actress. She's really good here in still life. She's been especially good in these most recent films, uh, ashes, purest white, uh, mountains made a part touch of sin. Um, so yeah. They've they've worked together for all this time uh, throughout the the entire film career of of well both of them, and uh, since 2012 they've been a married couple as well. And uh, just while we're talking about Jia uh, filmography, I want to mention one more film. There's a documentary which was made back in 2014 called Jia Jianca, a guy from Fen Yang, and it was made by the Brazilian filmmaker Walter Salas about. Jean-Ca and and where he 's from and a little bit of his backstory, but mostly about his films and him as a filmmaker but it 's really good, really worthwhile so if you've, um, if you 've gotten the bug for for uh, uh films, uh, this is a, a really terrific supplement to to also watch alongside these films
1: yeah, and a big thanks to to Big well Pictures for making the film available and, and having the restoration. Um, we actually have another Restoration from them in the screening room right now uh, from Taiwanese director uh, Simon Lang, uh, the whole from 1998, a musical set during a pandemic. So, what more could you ask for right now, really? So yeah, um, I think maybe I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest another double feature, second of the episode.
0: Sounds good. Yeah, uh, really like what Big World Pictures has been bringing out, and hopefully we'll have some some more of. Of their titles coming up in the in the near future. All right, so that's still life uh, coming to us from our friends at Big World Pictures. And there's one more film to remind everyone about that we are uh, bringing back as as it as the case may be in our virtual screening room this week, and that is the documentary RBG. So this is an encore presentation of Betsy West and Julie Cohen's documentary. Uh, about, of course, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And again, in addition to the original documentary, um, if, you, if you watch it through our virtual screening room, you'll also have access to a bonus Q&A with the filmmakers uh, that was recorded this summer, moderated by Melina Reisick from New York Times. Okay, so that's what's new this week in AFI Silver's virtual screening room. In addition to discussing everything debuting in the virtual screening room each week, we also like to discuss some other ideas for films that you can view at home, and we call this section Our Programmer's Picks. And this week, we're going to discuss a film that just marked its 30th anniversary since its release in 1990. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster.
2: I know I'd go from rights to return
0: The film is, of course, Goodfellas, directed by Martin Scorsese, and you just heard Ray Liotta as Henry Hill, the real-life Brooklyn-born gangster who grew up in the 1950s, emulating neighborhood gangsters, grew up to join their ranks, and then betrayed them in the 80s, providing government testimony against his former associates in a plea deal for the Witness Protection Program. Liotta gives a great performance as Hill, a man who uses his charm and good looks to lie, cheat, and steal, ultimately to everyone around him, including himself. Goodfellas is based on Nicholas Pileggi's book about Hill, Wise Guy, and Pileggi also wrote the screenplay for Goodfellas. He and Scorsese would collaborate again on the screenplays for Casino and most recently The Irishman.
2: And, and of course you might remember Goodfellas for the over-the-top violence that we see on screen, but... You can't forget that it's endlessly funny. Really funny. What do you mean I'm funny? <laughs> it's, it's funny, you know. It's a good story. It's funny. You're a funny guy. It's funny. What do you mean? You mean the way I talk? What?
0: It's just, you know, you, it's, you're just funny. It's, it's funny, you know, the way you tell the story and everything.
2: Funny how? I mean, what's funny about it? Tommy, no, you got it all wrong. Oh, Anthony. He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What'd you say? You're right. Funny how? Just, what? Just... You know, you're, you're funny. <laughs> you mean... Let so? I me mean, understand this, because I don't you know. Maybe it's me. I'm a little fucked up, maybe. But I'm funny how? I mean funny like I'm a clown. I amuse you. I make you laugh. I'm here to fucking amuse you. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny?
0: I'm not just... You know how you tell a story? What?
2: No, no, I don't know. You said it. How do I know? You said I'm funny. How the fuck am I funny? What the fuck is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Get the fuck out of here, <laughs> Tommy. <laughs> I almost had him.
0: I almost had him. <laughs> had him? stuttering.
2: And the film isn't merely funny. Often the jokes are used to juxtapose up against some extremely dark and violent scenes. And that really serves to underscore just how ruthless and cold the characters are. Uh, there's more than one joke at the expense of various men clinging to their lives in trunks. Um, and, but nonetheless, the film really remains a laugh out loud funny, funny film from moment to moment, especially in, in that clip we just heard of uh, kind of a perfect encapsulation of how the darkness is often undercut with the punchline, and this, in this case, from one of the most sinister and unhinged characters in the film, in Joe Pesci's Tommy.
0: Yeah, Ben, you you mentioned the the, the characters stashed in, in trunks, drunks, uh, very famously in, involving the the Billy Bats character getting whacked, which forms the the prologue of the of the movie, and, and then reconnected uh, later, later on in the, in the narrative, but the use of comedy and and the use of joke making, it, it really is present throughout the whole movie, but it's, uh, it's a very uneasy presence. Um, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of the times there's, there's joking around the, uh, issuing of, of harm of injury or, or, you know, the lead up to it, the characters are, are laughing and joking, but it's often very strained laughter and, you know, underlings laughing at the boss's jokes or especially with with tommy and and the fantastic performance by joe pesci uh you know it's very cruel humor making fun of other people uh or storytelling that's really just to dominate the conversation so it's it's all this kind of like uh, verbal dominance and 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 dominance displays uh which is you know far from actually funny but it's uh Undeniably, it's it's present throughout throughout the whole movie, um, and that that of course sets up that quick turnabout into when it does spill into violence.
1: Well, I honestly do think of this film as a dark comedy. Um, you know, it does have some laugh out loud funny moments and some very uncomfortably funny moments, as you mentioned, Todd. But I think what makes it really funny is it's a reverence. You know, this is not the version of the mafia that we see in something like the godfather we're not in these you know we're not in the stoic upper echelons of of mafia royalty where everything's about honor and loyalty and and silence these are just the everyday low level enforcers on the ground doing the dirty work basically living in a world in which honor doesn't really exist And, and it's the gap between what we know henry and tommy and jimmy aspire to be part of that upper echelon of of mafia power and what they actually are you know that's that's funny and Scorsese is kind of undercutting that gangster mythology and the reverence with which organized crime is sometimes presented particularly in film and you know Henry Hill is the ultimate unreliable narrator but even in this messy down and dirty depiction of his life of crime he kind of aggrandizes himself, he exaggerates his own importance. And so we're acutely aware throughout the film that even in this version of, of, of the mafia life that we're seeing um, is, is kind of a fantasy. Uh, and even that fantasy is an acid mess. And despite all of his claims to being part of this ultimate boys club, uh, you know, in the end, Henry Hill commits the worst sin in the mafia rule book. Uh, the thing that Jimmy Conway's character tells him definitely not to do, he rats on his friends. Uh, he betrays the code of honor, and in a way, that's that's kind of funny as well as being pretty tragic. Um, and I think you can see some of this, these ironic depictions of gangsters and organized crime, uh, following Goodfellas in you know the work of Quentin Tarantino, Guy Ritchie, uh, you know even The Sopranos. So you know they all owe a great debt to this this film and the world that Scorsese builds and then simultaneously undercuts. You know, and we actually have more than one unreliable narrator here. We see this world not only through Henry Hill's eyes, but also through Karen Hill's eyes as his, his wife and as this character who kind of inadvertently or not so inadvertently maybe marries into the mob. And of course, she's the only other character in the film besides Henry Hill who has a voiceover narration. So along with Henry, she's our way into this world as, as an audience. Um, and she's also a big part of how Scorsese very humorously, as I mentioned, undercuts Mafia uh, mythology. And here she is doing just that. It was like he had two families. The first time I was introduced to all of them at
2: once, it was crazy. Paulie and his brothers had lots of sons and nephews. Paulie, I want you to meet and almost all of them were named Peter or Paul. This is Peter. This is my brother, it was unbelievable. I want you to meet Paulie Jr., my nephew. And this is Rex. Petey. There must have been two dozen Peters and Pauls at the wedding. This is Marie. Plus, they were all married to girls named Marie.
1: Beautiful. beautiful. So she looks Italian. <laughs> yeah, she
2: looks Italian, you right. And they named all their daughters Marie. This is Marie. And this is Pete. No, I mean Paulie. I get confused myself. <laughs> Congratulations. By the time I finished
1: meeting everybody, I thought I was drunk. So Lorraine Bracco uh, as, as Karen and Ray Liotta as Henry Hill are uh, an incredible duo in this film. Um, in some ways, I think Karen actually has more of a role than Tommy or Jimmy in kind of moving things forward and stirring things up. Um, again, she's a big part of how Scorsese undermines this fantasy world that he's, he's presenting. Um, Yeah, she's taken in by the lifestyle at first, just as we are as viewers, you know, when Henry leads her into his kind of magical, sparkling life through the back door of the Copacabana Club. But, you know, we also see how she becomes a victim of this life over the course of the film. And actually, there's no denying that Karen is an abused spouse here, both physically and psychologically. And by the end of the film, you know, she's tired, she's desperate, she's definitely ready to get out. She's become one of those women that she has such disdain for when she first marries Henry. And again, as Scorsese's setting up this massive gap between how she sees the life of a gangster's wife and, and what it actually turns out to be, which is funny and and tragic. Um, but back to the, the comedy, because all of that's intertwined, Bracco and Liotta also make an amazing comedy duo in some parts of the film, despite the toxicity, or maybe because of the toxicity, of their relationship, uh, you know, particularly in the final May 11th sequence. It's amazing. Um, and yes, Bracco and Liotta were, you know, they're both movie stars, they're both incredibly good-looking and charismatic on screen, but they also have this kind of realness and down-to-earthness that works really well here. You know, neither of them were massive stars at the time, uh, so I, don't, I think they don't bring with them the baggage of, of star personas. Apparently Warner Brothers originally were thinking about casting Tom Cruise as Henry Hill, and he just worked with Scorsese on The Color of Money, and Madonna. And I think that would have been a very different dyna- dynamic and a big mistake. There's, there's no way it could have worked the way that, that Brecco and to do.
0: Yeah, that's completely unthinkable. <laughs> <laughs> that that casting, um, it's uh, it's unfortunately thinkable in terms of what might be dreamed up uh, in the corporate suites when when it comes to casting, and we must remind ourselves at that point in the, in the late '80s, um, but but un- unthinkable in the in the long view. And Bracco and Leota never better than in these two roles, and unfortunately, in their feature film careers, neither really had another opportunity to be as good as they are here, and again show what they can do. And, you know, I've watched the film several times over the years. I've always been really taken with both of their performances individually. But I have to say the most recent time I watched it was the first time that I really focused on how they were working together. I mean, Abby, you're describing them as a comedy duo. I don't know if I completely agree comedy duo, but there's there's that aspect of timing and working off of each other. And I was really, really picking up on that in their in their scenes here, uh, you know, I I'll leave it to the viewer's discretion how, how comedic any of it is, um, but just how much of it was teamwork. And, you know, the first time you see it, you know, their scenes are c- conflict and, and violent and you sort of react to that on the surface. But with subsequent viewings, I've keyed in more on the way that the actors are creating that and they're creating that together. And and there there is this kind of teamwork to to how they're doing that together on screen. And I was just really uh in awe of it this last time I watched it.
2: Yeah, Todd, I totally agree that their performance working off of each other is really, really good here. And, you know, there, there's a little bit of the, the troubles that they have, of course, um, uh, as well as, as Karen being complicit. And um, I think the, the scene we're about to hear um, really encapsulates that uh, beautifully.
0: Your are Are you all right?
2: Are you all right? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. I know there are women like my best friends who would have gotten out of there the minute their boyfriend gave them a gun to hide. But I didn't. I gotta admit the truth, it turned me on.
0: Lorraine Bracco was Oscar nominated for her performance here as Karen. And of course the other role and uh, series that she's uh, best known for is for playing Dr. Jennifer Melfi on The Sopranos. Uh, where she was also outstanding. Now, The Sopranos, uh, amazing series that it is, I think the greatest series of all time. Of course it owes a huge debt to to Goodfellas uh, in terms of its sensibility and tone and its take on the mafia, its, its demythologizing, de-glamorizing of the of mafia stories and settings as Abby was talking about a, a moment ago. But there's also this amazing connection between The Sopranos and Goodfellas in terms of how many actors who appeared in the 1990 film would go on to appear in The Sopranos series during the course of its run through the later 90s. Uh, So of course we can start off with Lorraine Bracco as one of the top billed uh, members of the cast in The Sopranos and there through the duration of the series. But that list would also include People like Michael Imperioli, who we see here in the role of Spider, uh, another individual who runs afoul of uh, uh, Joe Pesci's uh, psychotic uh, joke making that turns into violence. And of course, played Christopher through through the duration of The Sopranos. Uh, also the actor Tony Sirico, uh, a relatively small part uh, as Tony Stax, sort of in the 50s set scenes of uh, Goodfellas but one of uh, the the big parts of Tony's crew in Sopranos is Polly Walnuts and also kind of a fan favorite. Uh, Also Frank Vincent, who's uh, got a a very memorable appearance uh, in his scene here as Billy Batts, who we we mentioned earlier and uh, his misfortune running afoul of uh, Tommy uh, as well. Another victim of Tommy uh, here in, in Goodfellas. Uh, Frank Vincent was uh, appeared on The Sopranos for many seasons as Phil Leotardo. Vincent Pastore has just a small part here in Goodfellas, billed as Man with a Coat Rack. It's kind of a blink and you miss him uh, appearance, but he's he's definitely there. And then he went on to play Big Pussy, one of the another fan favorite character through the first couple seasons of of The Sopranos. Uh, Continuing on, Suzanne Shepard, she plays, I I love that she plays Karen's mother here in Goodfellas, and she plays Carmela's mother in The Sopranos. And the list goes on. Uh, Tony Darrow, Tony Lip, uh, Paul Herman, uh, and I want to mention Chuck Lowe. Chuck Lowe is really funny. As Maury, Maury's wigs here in Goodfellas. And he, he appeared in just a, uh, an episode of The Sopranos as the character Shlomo Titleman. Uh, I believe that was uh, the Orthodox Jews running uh, a motel uh, in one, one uh, episode, maybe a couple episodes of uh, of Sopranos. Uh, I think the list totals uh, 27, nearly 30 actors altogether who had at least had an appearance in, in both the film and the series. So it's an, a, an amazing connection between uh, the, the feature film Goodfellas and the series The Sopranos.
1: Well, one Goodfellas actor who was not in The Sopranos, of course, is Robert De Niro, who plays Jimmy Conway here. Um, his role is slightly smaller, I think, than, than Tommy and Henry and even Karen, actually. Um, but he's actually top billed in the credits because, of course, he was the biggest star in the cast at, at that point, and he'd already worked with Scorsese on, on Mean Streets and Taxi Driver, New York, New York, Raging Bull, King of Comedy, and he'd already built this kind of New York gangster tough guy persona. So he works really well in more of a supporting role here. He kind of brings this this world to life and makes it feel real without taking center stage. Um, And of course, he's introduced in the film as as Jimmy Conway, the Irishman. Uh, And I do find it immensely enjoyable to to see him gradually get aged up in the film as the years pass and then see the opposite happen uh, in his role as as Frank Sheeran, a different New York gangster, uh, Irish New York gangster uh, in Scorsese's The Irishman, of course, almost 30 years later. So I, I enjoyed that. Um, but, you know, the rest of the supporting cast, too, even even down to the tiny roles are fantastic and just perfectly placed. We have Paul Savino as, as Paulie Cicero, Samuel L. Jackson, if you forgot he was in this, is in this as Stax Edwards. Uh, Martin Scorsese's parents are in small roles. Charles Scorsese as Vinny, the guy who stirs the sauce in prison and breaks the news to Jimmy that Tommy's been whacked. Spoiler alert, sorry. Um, and Catherine Scorsese, Scorsese's mother. Uh, she's in a priceless role as Tommy's mother. And by the way, the painting that she shows the boys during their big dinner scene, the one with the two dogs facing different ways, was actually painted by Nicholas Pelleggi's mother which I find incredible. And if we're talking about movie prop paintings, this is truly one of the best of all time. Um, and you also have Scorsese's girlfriend at the time, Ileana Douglas, in a small role as Tommy's girlfriend, Rosie. Um, another amazing cast member, Welker White, as, as Lois Bird, the drug smuggling babysitter. Um, And I'll also mention that she appeared in Scorsese's The Irishman as Jo Hoffa, wife of Jimmy Hoffa, played by, by Al Pacino, And 30 years later. And then one bit of casting that I really love and I only actually found out about recently is Ed McDonald as the prosecutor who offers Henry and his family the chance to enter the Witness Protection Program at the end of the film. And yes, he actually plays himself in the movie. Ed McDonald was indeed the prosecutor who offered the real-life Henry Hill and his family entry into witness uh, protection. Uh, apparently the role nearly went to to Brian Dennehy, but when uh, uh, someone from the production was, was gathering photos of uh, McDonald and his diplomas for the set, to dress the set... Um, this staffer asked, he asked this staffer who was playing him and the staffer said the role hasn't been filled and he jokingly said he'd do it and Scorsese thought that was an amazing idea and he in fact cast McDonald as McDonald. Um, and apparently he wasn't asked to read lines but just to, to rely on his memory of what actually happened um, in that situation uh, and apparently he kept messing up by using uh, Jimmy and, and Paulie's real last names rather than, than their movie names. I just love that fact.
2: Yeah, that's great, and of course, we, we've gone through through the list of all these actors, all these great uh, people in front of the camera, but there's a lot of other key players and people behind the camera uh, that we should mention, uh, not least of which is Michael Powhouse, who was a cinematographer on the film. Um, he'd worked with Scorsese before on After Hours, Last Temptation of Christ, and would go on to do Gangs in New York and The Departed, um, but of course, you can't go a whole podcast talking about Goodfellas without mentioning the, the three-minute continuous tracking shot through the Copacabana. It's, it's one of the few shots that you can kind of say the Copa shot that it has its own name and you know what we're talking about. Um, and while we're on the topic of, of uh, cinematographers, just a, a quick shout-out to, to Michael Chapman, who was a cinematographer on Raging Bull and Taxi Driver who just passed away this past week at the age of 84. And Michael bauhaus of course, passed away in 2017 uh, at the age of 81. So the cinematographer, very important, but I think even more important in this case, and more important to Scorsese overall, is Thelma Schoonmaker, who is his longtime editor, uh, who he met back when he was at NYU. Um, they worked together for over 50 years now, starting out with Mean Streets, and she's since won three Academy Awards for her work, uh, one for Raging Bull, another for The Aviator, and then most recently for The Departed. Um, and she really is one of the best to ever do it, one of the best to um edit film. Um, she's been an essential part of Scorsese's work, and Goodfellas is is no exception. Her editing is is key to what makes the film a masterpiece.
0: Yeah, and Thomas Schoonmaker's uh Uh, close working relationship with Scorsese throughout his whole career and, uh, you know, very celebrated, recognized as the editor that she is, but really it's, it's every single film that she's, she's worked on. uh, She should be considered for the Oscar. And she has, she has won several Oscars at this point, but it's, it's one of those careers where she should have a a whole room full at, at this point. Uh, again, nominated here, but but not a winner. And when you go back and look at this film over the years, uh, it's it's a tour de force of editing. Um, we talked about the, the prologue scene that the movie, approximately 90, 80 minutes in, 90 minutes in, rejoins with what we saw in that prologue and flashes back a few scenes of that sort of in summary version. And it all connects across all that time. And at, that, at this point, we've already covered decades of what's going on in this gangster epic with these characters. But because she's so good at what she's doing and, and understands the pacing involved and, and what you have to show the audience, what you don't have to show the audience to get them to follow along, it, it works. And that cannot be an easy thing to do, but everybody gets it when we reconnect to that prologue uh, midstream in the narrative, way, way downstream at this point. Um, and it's 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 the kind of thing that ought to be taught in film classes i i i think um just really really in awe of it um and again the question of pacing. This is a fast-paced movie and it never lets up. There I guess there's a few scenes that maybe stop and catch a breath. These kind of uh tangential scenes like uh how to make really good pasta and in, in prison and and how you, how you have to slice the garlic really thin. Uh there's a, there's a couple scenes like that where sort of Henry stops and slows down and explains something tangential, but for the most part it's a pretty fast-paced, pretty pacy story and it makes this Epic film again, two and a half hours. It just flies by. It and no, you you don't feel the length at all. Again, that's a tribute to what the editor is doing in, in, in telling this story and, and maintaining that pace and knowing what's required in, in terms of shot selection and and the and the pacing of the cuts to to engage the audience the, w- the way we are engaged here. So that pace is maintained throughout the whole film, but then it pushes it even faster when we get into the third act and now it's the 80s and and henry's drug habit is really bad and uh he's got just having a lot going on in his life and he's super busy and as you can hear him explain in in this clip there's a lot going on and he's barely keeping up with it all as soon as i got home i started cooking a few hours until lois's flight I told my brother to keep an eye on the stove all day long. The poor guy's been watching helicopters and tomato sauce. You see, I had to drive over to Sandy's place, mix the stuff once and then get back to the gravy. So as you can hear from that clip, uh, things have gotten very heavy for Henry at this point in 1980. Uh, His drug habit is out of control. He's in way too deep with the drug trafficking. And this is right before he's about to get pinched for that. The other thing you can hear in that uh, extremely excited uh, delivery from Ray Liotta as Henry, uh, you heard a couple uh, pieces of the musical montage that's going on in this scene. I think you heard uh, part of a George Harrison track. And then that segued into uh, Muddy Waters' Manish Boy. Whenever I think back to this sequence, which I absolutely love the sequence in the film, I always think of the the Nilsson track, Jump Into the Fire. And it's true, that's the main track throughout that, but I had forgotten and had to be reminded in my last viewing of the film, uh, on the soundtrack, they've actually created their own little medley where Jump Into the Fire is interrupted periodically with other songs before returning to Jump Into the Fire. So we also heard the, the two uh, songs i mentioned before and then also two uh two selections from the rolling stones we hear monkey man very appropriate for someone with a drug habit at this point and also a deep cut track memo from turner which uh has a film connection of its own it's an obscure relatively obscure stones track but we hear it uh, very prominently on the soundtrack of nick rogues performance starring of course mick jagger And this is just uh, an example of the amazing selection of songs on the soundtrack. Scorsese, going back to uh, Mean Streets, loved to take a jukebox approach to uh, rock songs on his soundtracks. Goodfellas, just he's able to go wild with what he's able to include on the Goodfellas soundtrack. And of course, including the the selections here in this sequence, very famously makes creative use of uh, Layla from Derek and the Dominoes and Atlantis from Donovan. Uh, doo-wop songs, uh, Shangri-Las, and other girl group songs. It's a, an all-time great, amazing uh, rock soundtrack.
1: So it might surprise some of you to know that this this film about gangsters and murder and violence and serious cocaine habits premiered at the Venice International Film Festival. Um, and Scorsese received the, the Silver Lion Award for Best Director that year. Uh, The film went on to be given a a wide release in in North America on September 21st, so almost exactly 30 years ago. Uh, And it went on to be a big, big hit financially and and critically. It was nominated for six Oscars, including Best Director and Best Picture, uh, but it actually only ended up winning one Oscar for Joe Pesci as, as Tommy. And the big winner that year was none other than Kevin Costner's *Dances with Wolves*, which won seven Oscars that year, including Best Picture and Best Director. And I don't want to, you know, open old wounds, dig up old bodies, so to speak, um, or attack *Dances with Wolves*. But you know, thirty years later, *Goodfellas* is probably the film who, whose legacy has endured and, and grown. And I think we can probably say with 30 years of hindsight that it was robbed at the 1990 Academy Awards. I'll also note that for all the commercial and critical success that the film went on to have, Warner Brothers was actually initially really nervous about releasing the film because of its depictions of of violence and its heavy use of swearing Um, and apparently the the initial audience responses at the test screenings were were pretty bad but regardless it didn't matter the film was released to overwhelming acclaim it did well at the box office and you know all that despite the fact that the f-word is used in fact 321 times in the film. Um, which really puts it behind Scorsese's *The Wolf of Wall Street* and *Casino*, both higher, and also *The Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems*. So it really wasn't that bad. I don't know what the fuss was about.
0: Well, Abby, it's it's fun to joke about, but I I remember when the film came out, and I remember what the fuss was about. It's 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 just bizarre to think 30 years ago that this was considered something that people had to have an opinion about and had to debate and had to, you know, cluck their tongues about if Scorsese was just going too far with glorifying violence and all the swearing. And yes, this was a very topical point in late 80s, early 90s. And it seems so quaint now with everything that's happened in the popular culture and where filmmaking has ended up. Um, so yeah, worrying about how many F words are in Goodfellas doesn't, doesn't seem like uh, anything anyone needs to be worrying about nowadays.
2: Especially given that he would top himself twice since then <laughs> yeah. easily. Right. But yeah. And of course the film is to the test of time. It's a, a masterpiece, a classic that people go back to and, um, we're certainly happy to have revisited it. And if you've stuck with us this long uh, for, for the podcast, and hopefully it's, uh, it's no longer than the, the film itself and the runtime of Goodfellas, uh, but if you stuck with us to the end here, um, you deserve to hear how, how the film ended up and how, how it ended for Henry himself. And hopefully you've checked out the film. Uh, if you haven't revisited it in a long time, do yourself a favor. You deserve to watch it again. It holds up beautifully. Um, and here's Henry telling uh, his side of the story and how it all ends.
0: Today everything is different. There's no action. I have to wait around like everyone else. Can't even get decent food. Right after I got here, I ordered some spaghetti with marinara sauce, and I got egg noodles and ketchup. I'm an average nobody. Get to live the rest of my life like a schnook. Okay, that wraps it up for this week's edition of Silver Streams. Thank you all for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we hope that you see something that you love this week.
1: Thanks, everyone. Have a great weekend, and hope you're checking something out at the Latin American Film Festival.
2: Thank you so much for tuning in this week, and thanks again to our editor, Chris, who does a great job putting, it, putting together the episodes every week and making us sound even better than we already do. <laughs> Uh, and of course, we'll be back again next week. So we hope you come back.
0: A reminder to our listeners, you can find everything currently available in our virtual screening room on our website at afi.com silver. And a portion of the proceeds from screening these titles at home goes to support AFI Silver Theater. When you're on our website, please be sure to sign up for our e-blast in order to keep up with our latest announcements. And if you have any feedback or questions, you can email us at Silverinfo at AFI.com.
1: You can also get in touch with us or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at AFI Silver Theatre and on Twitter at AFI Silver.
2: The music for this week's episode was provided by Blue.Sessions. You can find more of their work on their website, sessions.blue.